It's time once again for the Green Majority Show. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Uh, we have a interesting, uh, couple of interesting stories about permafrost melting that are unearthing uh, interesting and somewhat horrifying things in the Arctic. Some stories about uh, Canadian and U.S. politics, as well as a brief section on the Rio Olympics, which I believe started today, or at least the day that we're recording this. If you can, are willing and are able, we would very much appreciate you supporting our program. We do this show uh, for the uh, costs that we do have uh, completely out of pocket, which is partially supported by our membership. You can be one of those members for as little as a dollar a month. Do that at greenmajority.ca or go straight to the source at www.patron.com slash Green Majority to sign up. Enjoy the show. Listening to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, possibly on our podcast, or you could be listening on one of our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners all the way across North America at this point, international podcast listeners, and of course, rabble.ca. You may also note, uh, if you were listening last week, slightly more relaxation in my voice. That's because I'm not alone, and Stefan has returned to Yes, uh, I'm sorry about that. You know, I, I never realized how much I miss you till you're gone, Stefan. Uh, well, you know, I hear that. That's why I leave. <laughs> it's just a reminder. Absence makes the heart go fonder. Exactly. Well, if you would uh, be so kind, then, as to uh, possibly introduce the first sh- uh, segment of the show in just a minute, I will let people know what's coming up later in the show. However, right now, we have a guest today, which I, I've, I've, I neglected to confirm if it was Rosemary Frey or Fry. We'll find out in about 15 minutes, uh, who um, has a a very interesting story about quitting her job and devoting full-time to activism. Uh, Both, uh, She wants to tell a a brief uh, anecdote about um, how she came to this decision um, uh, and why, and uh, and then is also going to regale us with a tale of some of her adventures uh, being a full-time activist, uh, including some some information about local Canadian uh, fracking projects and the like. So look forward to that in Section 2. In Section 3, we're going to be talking about some uh, Siberian anthrax and some Cold War military bases, and no, this is not uh, uh, a a radio documentary. These are real stories as well. Or the 1980s comic book. Yes. Also, not that. Uh, I love Siberian anthrax and, co- and and underground Cold War bases is really the two things that like we are officially in nineteen eighties nineteen eighties like pop fiction. Yeah, I'm gonna try and find one of those old uh, like uh, Cold War spoof comic book covers. I think for nice. today's show title, we'll see what I can do. But while I'm working on that, Stefan, why don't you uh, introduce our audience to the beginning section of the show? For sure. Yeah. So uh, as the end of the show is gonna take all the fun stories, the beginning is uh, we always try and build to positive. That's our new thing. Yeah. Exactly. Well, <laughs> build to positive. I think the end. Is, <laughs> the end is most. Uh, the end. I was gonna. I was gonna tease as one of the end stories. The anthrax story is 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 I think maybe officially four or fifth on my on my ongoing creative list. Um, favorite apocalypse scenarios. Yeah, but there's four above it. That's true. Yeah. Well, number one remains the jellyfish. <laughs> uh, but we're going to begin the show actually with some more, uh, some more down to earth, uh, in the now stories. I'll call them. Uh, and it's really actually the two stories we're going to cover uh, are really about 
what how conservative attempts uh, or the, especially cons- when I say conservative I don't mean generally conservative I mean uh, the Canadian conservatives uh, and even, and the American Republicans we'll, we'll loop them into one con- this conversation uh, that their refusal to accept carbon pricing is actually not only uh, uh, in the words of a, a National Post uh, article dismantling their credibility uh, on economic policy uh, but even more so I think actually it is creating a scenario where what they are getting instead is exactly what they fear. Mm. Uh, by refusing to accept carbon p- pricing, uh, what they are really push- what they're forcing the hand of is is more regulations, uh, which of course are the devil if you are the right wing. Uh, and so, and I find this fascinating. So we're going to two stories that try to jump on that. And the first story uh, is this sort of from the uh, from the National Post article, um, and it's it's funny. It's, it's written by this by, by someone who actually feels like they're a they're an economist who's like disappointed in the mm. conservatives. Like they, they generally like you know they even give in the article they give credit uh, to the conservatives for getting us through the financial crisis, which arguably was done with regulations beforehand, but carrying on. Uh, they are they are seem relatively actually you know they're they're clearly a pro economic policy uh, economic policy kind of people. They, they they want people to pay attention to economic policy, uh, and they're sort of lamenting the fact that the Alberta Conservatives and the Federal Conservatives are both rejecting uh, this idea of carbon pricing um, and, and instead just sort of accepting just, you know, basically denialism instead. Mm. Uh, and what's interesting about this is that it comes from a different couple of things. One, uh, it, it, the, the reason why uh, the argument is that they're rejecting this, why they're dismantling their credibility, uh, is because they're basically arguing against the market. You know, the, one of the they highlight one of the one of the main arguments against this is that uh, changing pricing won't affect supply and demand, which is the quintessential economic paradigm. Uh, and so, if you're if if, if you're by arguing that that um, uh, that carbon cannot be cannot cannot be contained, or that oil cannot be, or the use of gasoline and oil can't be curtailed by increasing the price, you're basically arguing that the 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 quintessential piece of your argument for the last hundred years that the that the or since Adam Smith uh, came up with the you know the invisible hand of the market is doesn't work. Well, it's it's the underpinning of of the, all of their arguments against everything. It, it's 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 the entire argument they've been using to try and argue against climate policy, like in the first place, about like using those same economic arguments to say why we must invest in oil, and then right at the last minute turn around and say, yeah, but it doesn't. Like, I'm going to well, use the exact. I'm going to argue the opposite to argue the opposite to the same point. Well, exactly. We need to. We need. <laughs> we need. We need subsidies to reduce the price of oil so people can use that to drive our economy. But increasing the price of oil won't change amount the amount we use oil. Mm. It's 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 nonsensical. Uh, so, Stefan, I, I understand you're a little bit overweight. So, uh, I've invented this <laughs> that you eat too much cake. And so, what I've done is I've invented this magical uh, diet loss cake. It will it does still contain all the fatty food, but it will simultaneously cause you to lose weight. That, that I'm the, 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 to be fair, that's basically every diet diet craze <laughs> in America. Um, but um, but so yeah. So th- that's what's what's so interesting about this is that well, they've created a scenario uh, where the where you know the cons- Alberta Conservatives and federal Conservatives and the Republicans in the United States uh, who quintessentially basically worship these basic economic principles. Uh, their main contribution to the economic conversation about this uh, is that is, is to fight carbon pricing in any way, shape, or form. And what's that? What that is causing is this move on the left. It's like, okay, well, we still want to get some things done. Where you're rejecting the option, you're rejecting the option uh, that we gave you, which is the quintessential right wing option, uh, like carbon pricing, especially through a cap and trade system, is. Is is you know is quite, quite derided by the left as as regressive uh, in that it you know disproportionately hurts the poor uh, and all these other things and yet even that even the option that quintessentially should be right up their ballpark they're refusing 
uh, which pu- which forces the people who are trying to make climate change policy through to f- to, to diversify their tactics. Uh, and to try other things. And what we're seeing in these, quote, unquote, other things, um, you know, with Obama and, and with Trudeau right now, is that there's a, they're accepting, okay, we can't get carbon pricing. So what do we do instead? And what they do instead is more regulations. Uh, for example, Ob- uh, for example, Obama uh, just recently passed a passed a thing which is very very similar actually to what Trudeau passed uh, when he first came in power, uh, which is that uh, it's something called a final guidance uh, calling on federal agencies to fully consider greenhouse gas emissions and global warming at, and the cost they impose on society when deciding major projects. Uh, and so this is no longer a just make an economic decision. They're moving past that because they can't get that passed, and instead they're calling on government agencies to ins- to decide. Using using regulations under uh, the National Environmental Protection Act uh, to decide what, and, and, to, and to curtail emissions that way, uh, and so it's it's interesting that this is the, the policy that's being formed here, and you see the same thing with Trudeau. Uh, Trudeau, you know, the pipeline conversation, he came in and it, you know, instead of having the conversation about whether we just have a, car, a price on carbon and then let the economic market figure it out, Trudeau was forced to come in and basically put climate tests on all of the pipelines and all the infrastructure projects uh, because we don't have a strong price on carbon. Uh, and so we have a scenario now where the left is arguing with 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 the quote unquote right uh, to let us let the market decide, and the right is like plugging their ears and ignoring this conversation. Yeah, and I, I think there's a there's a larger trend here which I want to identify as well. Um, which is, I mean, this is this is a story that is currently playing out in many parts of the world. We, I mean, we, we're seeing this right now with uh, Trump, and I know we're going to move, move a little bit into what you were you just did a segue mm-hmm. there into sort of the U.S. side of the story. But I mean, essentially, like, there, there's two things here that I want to point out. One of them is that the the effect of Trump, which is essentially is just you know you once you invest you know intellectual capital. I hesitate to use that word in the same sentence as Trump, but anyway, <laughs> we'll just carry on. Uh, we'll do the same thing. <laughs> Carry on, yeah. upwards and onwards. Uh, the, using the intellectual capital of your ideas to the point, like even past the point that they've been like refuted so resolutely, uh, you know, saving face is more important than being right. Uh, and so they just dig their heels in. And so what Obama has been routinely criticized for is uh, by you know the alternative media. Anyway, you're not going to see this on CNN, mm-hmm. um, but. What the, pretty much universally the the independent media, which is now a monster, so don't think this. Oh, these are just a couple of small, you know, ridiculous blogs. Well, one of these ridiculous blogs has more viewers than all major major news, uh, like TV news combined on a daily basis. So so much for small alternative media, the uh, the Young Turks being that one. But um, is the idea that you know. Every single time Obama uh, has had some conflict with the Republicans who have admitted openly, unopenly, you know, email leaks. They've said it in publicly in interviews. It's, it's an absolutely established, admitted fact that their policy towards Obama was just stop everything. Just shut down government, prevent it from operating, say no to everything, no matter what's offered you, say no. Uh, and what Obama's response was, I think, was incredibly naive, which was, OK, well, just accept all of their conditions. And then pretty, pretty please, maybe if you just give in and even though you're the one with all the power, next time. Time they'll return the favor. Uh, and then they're thinking, well, no, now you've given us everything we want. So now we know that the hostage taking works. So now we're going to ask for more. Right. And we're not going to let that go through. And I, I just I feel like, you know, I, I don't think he's like you know, some like secret evil secret plan. I just think he's equally incredibly naive. And what we keep seeing and what the what is, you know, what identifies this is not a, a crazy master plan, but just a bunch of ch- men and women children uh, who are playing, uh, you know, personal games with people with the future of our planet. 
is that instead of going, okay, we got what we wanted, let's take it. They're going, no, we're still not happy. We want this. Like, it's just, it's insane. It's insane. The, the point that the, the entire underpinning of your party is to do something, which now you, like conservatives, whether we're talking about Americans or, or Canadians, invested all of their social capital in saying that climate change wasn't true. It is now... You have to be crazy. And even like only the lunatics inside the parties are outright claiming that it isn't true. But the parties as a whole have invested so much capital in that that they essentially they've backed themselves into a corner. And what we're that's what we're seeing right now. We're seeing these ridiculous childish games of of, you know, basically demanding insane things and then forcing semi reasonable people like Obama and Trudeau to sort of like be like, I don't, I don't know what to do. Like, uh, do I give you a little bit more? Do I not? Like, I, it's, oh, yeah. it's, 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 it's child. That's what's so thing. People think that these, Oh no, these are complex. They're smart. They know what they're doing. They're training the ball. They know way more, more what you do you know, trust them. Like, no, no, I don't because they're children. We have well-meaning ignorant people on the left and completely either, smart but backed into a corner so they're acting stupid or actually just lunatic people on the right and these are the people who are leaving these conversations to well yeah and, that, and that's the that's the serious problem we have right is that how do you when you know especially the and it's what the republicans that uh, you know fully segue into the states it's what the republicans sort of did to themselves is they spent the last 15 20 years denying facts denying facts matter uh over and over and over again uh and then and then they and then they get, finally get the quintessential candidate who denies facts matter that the candidate who makes things up all the time makes a couple days ago he made something up the, his own campaign said actually it didn't happen he saw the wrong thing and then the next day he was still saying it so like you've got the quintessential essence of that of that the, the, you have the rebel, you have the, rebel, the republican id in donald trump <laughs> that is what you have uh and now they are trying to turn their turn, turn back and be like no but we actually do care about some facts and their entire base has given up on that yeah uh and so and so and and what but i want to guess we get back to that one point um which is that if you are a conservative leader uh if you are leading the leading a leading voice on the right and you want to have and you want to be brought back into the conversation uh on climate change uh you have to stop uh fighting carbon pricing because it is the best option for you it is the market solution it is the right-wing solution to climate change, unquestionably. Uh, and, 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 and the left has conceded the left-wing solutions, basically, at this point. You know, the fact that we don't even see carbon tax, you see cap-and-trade as the only real option getting pushed most places. The left has, con- has con- conceded almost every argument that we would want uh, for, for carbon to just get something done. And the fact that it's still being not happening leads the leads leads governments uh, to to accept other things. Like every single thing Obama has done to reduce carbon has been done without passing a single law because they would never do it. And so all it's been doing is extend expanding the powers of the EPA. If you want to get rid of the EPA, let there be a price on carbon. That's how you let the market deal with it. And by rejecting it, you're rejecting the central goal of the entire idea. Yeah, and I think a brief note. I want to. I want to quickly make a, a small aside to our ongoing um, Exxon new thing. There's the one article mm. here about the uh, the sort of secret pact to keep climate probe confidential. We'll get to that. But by way of segue, like you know, I, I like occasionally because I, I know there are people of a range of political backgrounds. I think it's obvious, probably, that most of our listeners are of the quote unquote self identified left. People could hate listen. Uh, 
I'm sorry? People could be hate listening. Oh, yeah. So for our hate listeners or for people that just randomly (laughs) turn on the radio, I want to explain something to you here really quickly. This is why if pressed into a situation between, you know, the right and the left or between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, why I'm always going to go with the left. And here's is very, very simple. I can actually describe it very succinctly. Because when push comes to shove, the right wing will literally, you know, get into a position where they say, let us burn the world or we will burn the world down. We were going to hostage take and it's our way or we're going to burn the entire building down. And the left goes, okay, I don't want you to burn the whole building down. What do you want? Yeah. And so we have the options between lunatics, either because they're just so self-important and they don't care about anybody else. It's just me, 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 personal, personal power, personal growth, you know, me and mine. Uh, versus people who like maybe I don't agree with their tactics all the time. Maybe I don't agree with their politics all the time. Maybe I think they're being ignorant or they're not pushing far enough all the time. But at least they're not lunatics. At least they're not saying it's my way or I'm going to burn the whole freaking building down. That's why. Well, and not to mention the fact that like for me, I just want a (laughs) I just want a a suggestion. You know, like I don't want like like I would be open to hearing uh, people on the right who have solutions for climate change. I am open to that. Yeah, uh, they did, and we accepted them, and now they say it's not good enough. Well, exactly. <laughs> That's the thing, right? Is that, like, I, like, I just want solutions. That's what I want. Give me even any solution. Like, even if they're, at least let me judge whether or not it's a good or bad solution. Like, because that's the thing about this, this this idea is that it's not even so much give me the, it's like give me the keys so I can drive this car off a cliff um, or I will not let you turn the steering wheel so you'll drive this car off a cliff. Yeah, and but it's, like, this is what you get this is what you get when demonstrable reality, when right. factual reality demonstrable reality, aka science is considered by a large group of people to be by definition partisan. Yeah. And that's a, that's a silly way of phrasing or a, a serious way of phrasing something that was probably the best phrased ever by Stephen Colbert, which I've said 50 times is the best quote in human history, which is facts have a well-known liberal bias. Yeah. It's just true. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, and uh, the, the, there's an interesting conversation to be had about what the left-wing version of these fact deniers are. Uh, but right now, they aren't the ones leading the party. You know, if you know, it once if you want to have a conversation about, there are certainly a whole bunch of myths that exist on the left that can be debunked by people by rational people. But they are the ones who, who are championing those myths are not the people currently running any major party in North America. Um, and right. so, and so, let we can have that conversation if you like. But let's have your smart people running your parties, and then we'll have this conversation. Yeah. So whether I think to cap this off because we're right at the twenty minute mark, we'll, why don't we'll, we'll go to a break in a minute? I think my my final comment to sum up this completely improvised segment on complaining about right and left politics (laughs) uh, is the the idea that, you know, like right now, we're still seeing infighting. There was conversation as late as yesterday about uh, Republicans who are terrified or hate Trump or or don't trust him or whatever it is, any reason they have for it. Maybe they're not lunatics. Mm. Um, Trying to figure out a way to get rid of him. Turns out you can't unless he steps down. But the fact that the conversation is still happening means that there are some sane people on that side. Uh, at some point, you have to realize that the car you're in is headed off a cliff. It doesn't mean you have to become lifelong rebels. We don't. We're not even asking you to like Trudeau. Mm-hmm. I don't like Trudeau. <laughs> I'm not asking you to like Obama. I'm highly skeptical of Obama. What we're asking you to do is join us and get just get out of the car that's heading off the cliff and come over and have a serious conversation with the adults that are actually trying to have solutions. And if you think your ideas are better than the left's, then great. Come and tell us about them because the people you're talking to are freaking lunatics and they're driving you off a cliff. Why don't we end it there? Alex, what are we going to listen to, buddy? <laughs> Thanks, Darren. Um... All right, another nice music break, Alex. Saving you once again all from my dance music. Thank you very much, Alex, <laughs> for that. Uh, 
So we're going to uh, have a, 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 a I'm going to go ahead and call it a story time. We have story time with Rosemary Frey, uh, who I met as a uh, hangers-on. I don't know if necessarily an active member or not, but as someone who was involved with 350 or at least was at several of their meetings. Uh, and we've uh, chatted several times since then. And, and uh, she began to tell me about some of her her tales and her stories and a bit of her story. And I found it very interesting. And I thought that you would be interested in because uh, as someone who's a uh, decade now part-time activist, I was very intrigued with the idea of having a full-time job and then giving it up, uh, you know, at least temporarily to pursue, to fully immerse oneself because I've sort of have this uh, uh, cognitive dissonance now for going on quite some time of sort of my, you know, my day-to-day life and then my Friday life, which is all about the show. Uh, and I sort of hyperdose on the environment, you know, Thursday evenings and Fridays for quite some time. But it's, uh, I, you know, I always end up going back to my other day to day. So I was very intrigued by this ongoing story. So I would actually like uh, to pass it to you now, Rosemary, uh, to, to share us a little bit about sort of how you got here. And then uh, we're very, very interested to hear about some of your journey. So please take it away, Rosemary. Thanks, Darren. So this is my kick at the uh, story time. Um, yeah, I, that's exactly what I did. I was, I'm 52, and I just quit the work I was doing for 22 years, which is a freelance medical writer. I sold my house, and I rent, I'm now renting a room in a friend's apartment. So I just said, to heck with all that. And what I want to do is devote myself more full-time to all these battles we have. The world is burning, and I couldn't just sit up in the burbs and, and forget about it. So I, that happened, I left, sold, left my house in May, and I joined what's called the Marche des Peuples pour Terre-Mère à Gaspésie, or People's Walk for Mother Earth in Gaspésie. Um, I'd, I'd been in Quebec in March and heard about this in the month of March and heard about this walk. And I thought, why not? I'll have time. I'll go. And so I, I joined it. And it's a 833-kilometer, 42-day walk. It starts in it started in Amqui, which is in the middle of Gaspésie, and went all the way to Rimouski. And I stayed for four weeks. And I'll, I'll tell you what the three main goals of the walk were. First was to support the Mi'kmaqs. It's their traditional ancestral unceded territory, most of Gaspésie, and they're resisting fracking. This 80 to 90 percent of Gaspésie is, is slated to be fracked. It's insane. Um, so they're, we're supporting the Mi'kmaqs and their resistance to this, to fracking and to other projects involved in the exploitation, exploration, transportation, and transformation of fossil fuels and Gaspésie. So, and we are adding our voice to, to the, the many people in the area and beyond who are saying no to this, this craziness. And we are also supporting local use of socioeconomic alternatives because it's up to the inhabitants of, inhabitants of Gaspésie to choose what the future of their peninsula will be. And the peninsula is beautiful. It's full of water, rivers, and salmon, salmon streams, and rolling hills, and beaches. And we started at Amqui, which is the middle of Gaspésie, on May 29th. There are about 40 of us, mostly from Montreal, some from Quebec and elsewhere, Quebec City, rather, elsewhere in the province. I was the only person from Ontario. It was very good for my French. <laughs> there was one other Anglo, but everybody else was uh, Francophone. So <laughs> uh, it was good for my French, and I love Quebec. Um, and so we camped, did a lot of camping. We'd walk about 20 kilometers a day, and sometimes we'd camp. Sometimes we stayed in in fields without running water and without electricity or anything with toilets um, but it was an adventure I looked at it as an adventure I was with young people who were very um, passionate about making change and this is this the, the issues that are faced in Gaspésie are incredible as I said about at least 80 or 90 percent of Gaspésie has been claimed for fracking it's clearly designated as a sacrifice zone 
And we learned about the details of all the plans by talking, getting talks in the evenings by people like Maud Prudhomme. She's a Gaspé resident who's very active <clears throat> and effective environmental activist. Um, one of the organizations she's involved in is Teshtwil, or Oil Spot, or Oil Spill. And she's Maud is wonderful. She also spoke at, le at at least one of the press conferences we had during the walk. And there's other people like Roselaine Tremblay and Pascal Bergeron and Bill Bossier who joined us. They're like the heart, of, among the people, the heart of, of environmental activism. Roselaine is like 65 and she's still as passionate and, and wonderful as ever. And they're with a group called Environnement Vert Plus, which I think roughly translated means maybe more green environment. Um, And the Mi'kmaq, whose traditional territory includes most, much of Gaspésie, as I said earlier, are involved in the fight against fracking. And we visited some of their towns, including in eastern Gaspésie. <clears throat> They even hosted us for lobster dinner one evening. I don't eat lobster, but it was still very nice. So the main companies who bought the claims in, for Gaspésie for fracking are junior companies like Petrolia, Junex, and Gastem. And we all know how environmentally crazy and destructive fracking is. Uh, there's the huge use of water, the dangerous chemicals, and the heavy metals that come to the surface into the groundwater. <clears throat> and there's like a 100% probability that after a few years, after the wells have been capped and abandoned, that they will leak methane. And after 10 years, the company is, that's it. They have no responsibility for the wells. So it leaves it up to the government, to the populace, to... to um, to deal with it, any remediation that might be necessary. And the really crazy thing is that many of these sites may not even be, even be what's called in French rentable or profitable. And that really doesn't make any sense unless you know about the crazy financing schemes used by other companies, by, these, by many of these companies. And you did an interview last year with Peter Tabins, an NDP member from Toronto of the Ontario legislature. Can you play the clip uh, from him in, that, where he explains how this financing is done? Yeah. Maybe the other clip. That was the one where uh, Peter Tabins was soloing the bass. <laughs> to be fair, he is good at it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, maybe in the bonus show, Stefan will tell you the music anecdote about or something about playing the bass. <laughs> But a uh, lot of what seems to be going on is that with very low interest rates in the United States, companies are able to get investors to loan them money through bonds to develop oil and gas, even if that oil and gas production is not particularly economic. Uh, I think it was Bloomberg's had a headline, uh, shale gas frackers feast on junk debt. Uh, talking about how a number of people in the investment community said there's a huge mistake going on here. People are putting money into these companies that are consistently losing money every year. They're borrowing money to pay off their old debts. And as Art Berman, who's a geologist in the United States, said in a speech he gave to the Houston Geological Society, these are Ponzi schemes. And ultimately, that's not the basis for an energy system for any country any industry. Uh, the Oxford Institute for Studies in Energy, which in the early part of the last decade projected the shale gas revolution, while in the United States no one was seeing it, have been saying recently that very big chunk of this industry is based simply on financing and not based on the reality of a resource to be obtained there. It doesn't make sense for us to invest hundreds of millions or billions 
in really these very sketchy schemes to sell bonds and produce gas that doesn't generate much money, damages the climate, and puts financial institutions at risk. People need to understand how shaky the foundation is for that shale gas, for that fracking industry. Because I know when we were debating this in the legislature, many of the other legislators, in particular conservatives, were saying, well, look, there's this huge resource. It gives us independence from imported energy. Uh, gas is relatively clean. Uh, why are you against it? And I'd say, first of all, it's, it's an illusion to think that this is a huge new source of energy for us. Uh, secondly, I don't think people are doing proper accounting for the methane that's just simply escaping into the atmosphere that leaks out uh, when the fracking goes on and later when a fracked well is abandoned. Those emissions can have huge impact. If you're getting a very large leak rate from those wells, then your methane or your natural gas burning may be as bad as burning coal in terms of the amount of CO2 you're putting into the atmosphere. And lastly, if you're actually going to develop renewable energy and an economy based on renewable energy, investing all this money over here on this leaky, dangerous, problematic technology diverts you away from where you have to invest if you're going to have a future. So that was our clip from uh, Peter Tebbins. Now back to Rosemary. Thank you. Um, and so the whole thing about the hedge funds and the, and the, the financial Ponzi, whatever, that must be what's going on in Gaspésie. Um, and locals are showing their opposition to all of this in as many ways as they can think of. We added to, the, to this during the walk, and we did a few direct actions. Who doesn't like direct action? We hijacked a press conference, in fact, that was going to be held in the city of Gaspé by a Quebec government minister. It just happened. We spent a week, weekend in Gaspé giving, you know, being, receiving and giving lectures and about environmental things and direct action. And we just, the day before on the Sunday, had a session on direct action. And lo and behold, we found out there was going to be a press conference the next morning right opposite where we were staying at the Musée de Gaspésie, the Museum of Gaspésie. So we planned this thing where we went. Uh, about an hour before the press conference was slated to start, filled all the seats and so they canceled the press conference, and we all, I didn't go, but they, they uh, started clapping and then took the podium and answered the, and talked to the press about why we object to what's going on in Quebec with the government fully supporting and subsidizing fracking. We talked about all of the problems, and, uh, and it was a success. Um, that seems like a bit of a tactical error on their part, actually, Rosemary. They, they, they made a stage and made the press come and then let you take it. That, I, I think they probably <laughs> would have been better served to just deal with the heckling, frankly. But anyway. I guess there were too many. Too, there were a lot of us, maybe 30, <laughs> and they, were, they didn't know what to do. I've heard of that before where they just canceled the press conference. So, mm. yeah. Yeah. And um, – uh, another thing that we did was we, we walked close to a fracking site uh, by Petrolia called Haldeman 4. It's just southeast of Gaspé, so this happened before this other press conference. And it's a site of a lot of problems. Uh, that's why we want to see it. For example, just in January of this year, Petrolia injected the company that's doing the fracking injected 70,000 70, liters of hydrochloric acid into the ground at the well site as part of a cleaning operation. And so Environnement Vert Plus put out a news release decrying this. It's just crazy. 
And the police were there when we went to visit the site, and they, were, they often followed us and harassed us because we were just peaceful, but they obviously found us threatening. Um, and a couple of the other issues we learned about were the city of Ristigouche Sud-Est, which is in the uh, southeast, southwest, actually, part of Gaspésie, is being sued by Gastem, one of these junior companies, for $1.5 million because the city opposes fracking due to its concerns about the security or safety of its water supply. And this is a small town. They don't have that kind of money, but they're determined to raise the money. And another huge issue is the McGuinness cement plant being built in Port Daniel. Um, It's slated to start operating next year. Uh, The cement plant will emit more than 1.75 million tons of carbon dioxide equivalent every year. And it'll burn coke from the Alberta tar sands. It will, in fact, be the largest industrial emitter of greenhouse gases in Quebec. It will increase the provincial total by 2%. And it gets worse. It was given the go-ahead without public consultation, without an examination of the environmental impact, because the Liberal government of Quebec passed a special law last year excluding the cement plant from an environmental review. And the Gaspésie region is job poor. So people are saying, oh, good, we'll, have, we'll get jobs. And, of course, the government isn't telling them about all the, the, the pollution because there'll be dust and it'll just destroy the landscape. And 60% it, of those jobs will be in cleaning up you know, waste. Yeah, you know, really. Yeah. It's just crazy. <laughs> It'll be lots of jobs cleaning up the disaster we made. And the project has received to date $900 million from the Quebec, Quebec government and $100 million from the federal government. And, in, but, and there are already um, cement plants in Quebec that are operating under capacity. This, we ha- they have enough cement. This is just a boondoggle. And the major equity holders are the Bombardier-Baudouin family, who we know them from the Bombardier, the company. And in fact, there was an article, I can't believe this, but the Globe and Mail on July 1st, Conrad Yakubuski said that, the, that this is just, he says, quote, Everything about this misadventure smacks of political hypocrisy, a lack of transparency, and a basic disrespect for taxpayers. Once operational, the McGuinness plant will create about 400 direct and indirect jobs at a cost of $1.13 million and counting in public money per job. So he said it's a good deal for, it's a good deal for the Quebec writing of Bonaventure and the Bombardier Baudouins, and so good, it might actually, though, cost the government the election. And the insanity goes on. There's also the Chaleur Terminals. There's uh, a company called Chaleur Terminal. They want to uh, warehouse uh, tar sands products at the port of Belle Dune in, in um, New Brunswick. And this would be transported by rail through, through other parts of Canada, including Gaspésie. And so the Micmac of the Gaspé Peninsula launched a lawsuit against it. And um, it's just, it's bad. And I just wanted to mention one other thing. After I, I was on the walk for four of the six weeks, and after I went to Anticosta Island, uh, because one of the people on the walk uh, was Marc Lafrance. He joined us for about a week, and he's from Anticosta, and he's really at the forefront of fighting, fighting you guessed it, fracking. They want to frack all of Anticosti. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's beautiful. It's full of, well, actually, too many deer. There's 160,000 deer on the island, but it's wildlife, lots of salmon. It's pretty pristine, beautiful. And, uh, in fact, on July 27th of this year, the Quebec government 
made it official. They gave permission to the company Petrolia and Hydrocarbure Anticosti to frack three wells um, on Anticosti Island, Anticosti Island in 2017. And as Marc Lafrance says, quote, this is what he said, quote, it's like playing, playing Russian roulette. You never know when it's going to cause contamination. A scientist he knows said, we know it's going to contaminate the water, but the thing is we don't know when. It could be in one year, 10 years, 100 years. And Anticosti is a karst. It's, it's um, limestone, so it's completely porous. So once there's contamination one place in the island, it's going to contaminate the whole island. And uh, she's extremely concerned. It's a big issue. And uh, fortunately, the Inu of the North Shore, Shore also are helping to oppose it. They're threatening to, to, threatening to blockade the company when it attempts to frack next year. And um, there's a, they'll really have a battle. And Mark is trying to figure out why would they do this? Because, again, on the, it's, not, it's not profitable. It could be go to the Ponzi scheme that, Mark, that Mr. Tablitz was talking about. Or uh, Mark's theory is that what they want to do is sort of prove, quote-unquote, that it's safe to frack, and then that would hope op- open up all of the St. Lawrence Valley for fracking. So, Well, that sounds like a lovely use of that space. Yeah. So th- thank you very much, Rosemary, for, for going through uh, a bit of your story. We don't have, a, unfortunately, a ton of time for lots of uh, questions uh, about that. I just maybe thought that uh, with the you know, quick moment that we do have before we have to go to break now, hopefully maybe you'll be able to stick around and, and join us for our bonus show as well to chat a bit more. Uh, but just quickly before we go to break, um, is there any way if people want to learn more about uh, either what you've did or maybe ask you some advice about how to follow in your footsteps, either literally or figuratively, uh, about this? Is there either a resource you'd like to direct people to? Or, may, or would you allow people to, to potentially reach out and contact you? Should directly? I give them my email address? Uh, if you maybe we'll we'll just list it on the on okay. the website if you'd yeah. like. But That's uh, fine. yeah, sure. so we can if if you're interested, we'll have a contact information for Rosemary uh, on the website. And we could list maybe some URLs for places for, they could go Absolutely. to for information. Yes, we will have a we'll we'll have a section on the on the post today uh, with uh, any resources Rosemary would like to provide as well. So if you're interested in learning more about her or her journey, or asking some questions, or maybe learning even just a little bit more about fracking or anything else, uh, please visit Green majority.ca as well and you'll be able to do that uh, however unfortunately we do have to go back to break so alice what are, alex what is our second music break going to be you make it sound like it's a bad thing darren well i'm just you know <laughs> I, you know you should know me enough by now that i, I only stop talking under duress definitely you should have a three-hour show <laughs> <laughs> don't encourage me <laughs> uh so i've been enjoying and we're back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, one of our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners, possibly on rabble.ca as well, our friends over there. Or you could be listening to, frankly, I, you know, with all due respect to everybody else, the best possible way to listen, which is the podcast. And mm-hmm. why is that, Stefan? Oh, it's because you get to listen to the bonus show. That's right. Yeah. Which is full of uh, non sequiturs, random jokes. We talked about Pokemon once. Yeah, there was an excellent entire thing about. Uh, I'm not doing a great job of selling it right now. <laughs> I don't know. I thought the uh, I thought the drones uh, the uh, the drones for ferrets was a was a was a good one. Yeah, it's a. It's like 20% more silly and 15% less relevant to the environment, but yeah. at least, you know, 80% more random. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, 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 you know, there's uh, – you never know what to expect. It's like a completely different thing. Yeah. There's also occasional cursing if that for any of you uh, that, you know, have HBO subscriptions. Yes, yeah. yes exactly. Yeah, if, you, if for some reason you just really – you can only hear swearing if you hear it on the radio. Uh, <laughs> we have it for you. Yes, exactly. All right. So with our limited time, Stephen, you're going to introduce uh, something about anthrax. Yes, 
Uh, actually, I, I, I joked at the beginning of the show uh, that this would I would add this to my list of, of favorite Armageddons, mm. uh, but I think I'm creating a new list for least favorite Armageddons mm. because an entire ocean filled with jellyfish uh, is remains my favorite Armageddon possibility. Uh, for more information, tweet at me. I'll explain the ocean filled <laughs> jellyfish Armageddon option, or just go back into our old shows. Yeah. Uh, but this one, I think, is actually just one I do not want to happen, mm. uh, but remains uh, a, um, a a concern. Um, it's so that the headline alone is is one of those things where you just read it and you sort of see like sort of matches the uh, it matches the fact that Donald Trump is president you, or running for president because you you sort of see him talk about about it with all the apocalyptic tones. It's going to say signs you, of the apocalypse. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and then you cut to the Washington Post article that says anthrax sickens thirteen in Western Siberia and a thawed out reindeer corpse may be to blame. How many children are having nightmares right now? I know it's a there's terrifying a lot of terrifying headline. There's a lot of awkward conversations happening with young children right now. Exactly. Uh, so this is a terrifying headline, um, and the, the the reason why we're covering it uh, is, of course, because of permafrost. Uh, this uh, the story is that the in Siberia uh, this summer actually has been incredibly warm, uh, about ten degrees Fahrenheit above average, uh, and so the, the, what that has caused is all this permafrost, which you know is 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 frozen land that stays frozen throughout the entire year. That's what the perma means permanent, uh, and frost means frost. Permafrost is permanently frosted, um, and so and so there's an ongoing concern. There's a whole bunch of you hear permafrost a lot in, in environmental circles, uh, in part because of the amount of methane that's being trapped underneath underneath this permafrost as well. Um, but this is a different thing, uh, which is that their their concern is that there hasn't been a uh, there hasn't been a single anthrax uh, in Siberia uh, since any any sort of any sort of uh, thing about it since 1941. Hasn't been hasn't appeared since 1941, so it's the first time in over 60 years. Uh, and it's this in this in this experience sent 13 Yamal nomads to the hospital and also killed 1,500 reindeer. Uh, so it's not just it's not just the uh, it's not just the, the people being sick. It also it, it totally had it forced a whole bunch of communities to move because the Siberian communities are nomadic, so they had to move to find more food uh, because of the number of reindeer it killed. Um, and and the real concern here is that this might not be the only thing down there. Uh, and it might not be the only time we sort of have this. So the, the concern is that a is that a a previously frozen reindeer corpse had anthrax on it. Uh, it was unearthed by the permafrost uh, because in a free in freezing temperatures, some of these microbes can last uh, over can live over a hundred years or can last over hundred years. Um, and so, and so, an anthrax is one of these concerns. And it's, and so basically, the, the real concern is that we don't know what else might be unearthed. Uh, you know, there's definitely methane, which will increase the global warming, which will sort of, you know, further the problem. Uh, but there's this, the concern is big enough that actually environmental scientists are actually encouraging people to start or encouraging organizations and governments to step up and begin to actually monitoring permafrost spots, permafrost spots uh, to uh, to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And and so that's like that's that's your that, that's so be concerned about permafrost basically, which is like a thing that we've said like on the show all the time because permafrost is one of those things where we're like constantly reminding you it's like hey that thing that's trapping a lot of bad things we want to keep it frozen, yeah. uh, but when people say when people when people talk about what some of the other sort of hard to quantify problems that climate change will cause. Uh, I think the idea of unfreezing a deadly virus that's, that exists in a, uh, a corpse, obviously anti not a virus, but you know what I mean, um, 
is is one of those concerns. Two words, Stefan: zombie reindeer. Yeah, exactly. So, moving from uh, reindeer, I'd like to uh, we'll transition to another thing that has been unearthed, which is uh, slightly less gross, but I, I'm going to put it at a par personally, uh, as far as concern. The U.S. Uh, Army Corps of Engineers in 1959 had built a subterranean city uh, under the auspices of uh, conducting polar research, but was actually, uh, in addition to many other services, uh, meant to be a uh, early warning system called Dew System for uh, nuclear strike from Russia during the Cold War, uh, as well as their own uh, secret submerged below the ice uh, ballistic missile launching uh, capabilities. Uh, the base was eventually launched, uh, eventually closed, and partially uh, gutted for resources, including their on site nuclear power generator. Uh, however, because they assumed that it would be secure uh, by the permafrost uh, and by the encroaching ice sheet, uh, a lot of it was left. So we have sewage, we have uh, 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 or abandoned diesel fuel, we have uh, PCBs uh, and radiological waste from the nuclear generator, which is now all being exposed uh, along with the structure itself and uh, the technical term being God knows what else. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, this is, uh, A, it's obviously an ecological uh, issue to have all this fuel uh, fuel and and dangerous chemicals and untreated sewage, not to mention the radioactive waste uh, on the site, but it is, you know, a step two in the same week. We didn't go cherry picking for either of these stories. This is just as the permafrost and as the ice sheets are receding, we're getting all sorts of surprises. Um, And they seem to be each one uh, less pleasant than the previous. Um, So, I mean, we'll keep watching. I I can, I, you know, hear me now, quote me later. There will be more things to be revealed by this uh, uh, permafrost. So maybe we'll call the end segment for now permafrost uh, unearthing watch. Yes. Uh, But this, this will not be the end and we have not heard the end of either of these stories. That is for sure. But for now, that's, I mean, more or less all the information we have. We can go into details, but I think it'd just be more useful of everyone's time if you're interested to read the articles. Check yeah. the website for that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the uh, well, I should also mention that previously, I, I think the one thing about permafrost uh, receding and is that it does have the most kind of just fascinating headline stories. Because uh, I believe the, the previous one to these two were the uh, large craters opening up uh, in the uh, oh, yeah. in, in, in Russia uh, when the, as the province. So like, the stories themselves are, if you're going for just headlines, mm. uh, the stories of receding per- uh, permafrost have some serious, serious headlines. Um, yeah. But to move on entirely to something that has nothing to do with permafrost, actually in a much, much warmer climate, uh, is and uh, in, in to, to wrap up the show is we're looking at again today actually I believe this afternoon is it today yes uh, the the Rio Olympics begin uh, and you know as as as, as I'm sure longtime listeners know Darren is a very very big fan of sports in general <laughs> uh, you know he's he's super into all of those go local things. sports team exactly yeah. Uh, all this huge stat head. Uh, if you ever need to know his stats about any sport in particular, uh, Darren is the place to go. There's a grand total of zero teams I care about. <laughs> There's a stat for you. Exactly. Uh, so obviously, what we're at, but but what the environmental link here actually is that these 2016 Olympics were really really billed as uh, and actually the actual quote is green games for a blue planet was the actual quote they used during the bidding process. Uh, and in these games themselves were going to be this sort of combination of environmental stewardship with urban renewal. 
uh, which is like a classic thing environmentalists are going for. So what, what I think I'd like to do, Stephen, I have a quick shotgun list of a, a bunch of issues. Then maybe yeah. we'll back up and come back to that first story sure. and we'll dig a little bit in here. I just wanted to sort of shotgun. So there's a running total, and this is certainly not ex, uh, extent. It's it's not exhaustive, uh, but it is extensive. Maybe <laughs> we'll put it that way. Uh, first one, of course, being the Zika virus, uh, which has now uh, been confirmed and has now been confirmed. In fact, there was a, uh, a precedent-setting travel ban internal to the United States last week as part of a Miami, I believe, neighborhood was cordoned off, uh, uh, essentially saying public, you know, in a downtown Miami neighborhood, saying, you know, not far from the city center, saying that there had been a Zika outbreak and they were telling people to go around with towels and dry up standing water. So this is uh, uh, quickly becoming a thing. I would also note that a few weeks ago, uh, I don't remember exactly what organization it was. It might have been the the actual, it might have been who, it might have been the World Health Organization, um, saying that they are saying, you know, the whole panel, a whole, you know, everybody from this said was saying, you know, you have to stop the games. This is Zika alone was justification on their on their to their minds to to prevent the games from going forward. Uh, we also, of course, have uh, safety issues. We, that's not really a bit off topic for this show, but just to mention the catastrophe as well. Uh, huge uh, violence, uh, people being shot, all sorts of terrible things. So we won't spend time on that. That's a different show to get into that. Uh, the athletes are already dropping out. Of course, there's the Russian doping scandal. But uh, getting more to the uh, environment stuff, there's the extremely poor conditions which could be threatening and are also in, in when you create uh, unsustainable structure or structures that are not meant to last. Of course, that's a giant waste of resources and incredibly uh, unsustainable as well. So just this, a whole bunch of building has gone up with completely uh, cut corners. So it was likely be you know, an entire waste of resources be torn down. Uh, getting more serious, of course, we have uh, super viruses that have been found in the water. A report I heard on the news yesterday was that one, one to three teaspoons of water that the swimmers will be swimming in is sufficient to cause uh, dangerous uh, exposure to a wide variety of things. Uh, not least of which being the uh, the hyper resistant bacteria. Of course, we have air pollution as well, uh, which is basically you can't go in the water, you can't breathe the air, uh, and uh, none of the infrastructure is up. So the biggest two, the biggest ones, obviously being the Zika virus, as far as related to the environment. The Zika virus, the fact that you can't drink the water, uh, any of the water, uh, the fact that the and the fact that the air is super toxic and they have no transportation and the buildings are going to fall over, uh, and that's just the environmentally related stuff. But but yeah, so, it's going to be fine. Oh, well, who knows? We'll find out. Um, but I think that. But what's interesting about this, this story is that it really shows the, uh, you know, the difficulties you come with trying to use. The Olympics are not a place to do positive structural reform of your city. I think is the first, uh, you know, as as I'm sure anyone who's even in, in even in Toronto who knows about the Pan Am Games, Pan Am Path was actually quite an interesting urban renewal piece. But there were sort of a whole bunch of other difficulties that that came. Quick out side note: I voiced the uh, commercial for the pitch for that project. Oh, fun! Yeah, that was a that was a very very small job, a side job I did. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, yeah. So Pan Am Path, uh, so that Pan Am Path was an example of actually sort of some urban renewal actually worked. Uh, of course, you know, there was also the idea of that even like even if in a well in a fully developed country or not as fully quote unquote um, in, a, in, a, in a country that is considered uh, the, the full on west uh, yeah. we can get our subway up to York in time uh, the idea that you know the, the idea that we're going to success in the other urban areas are, are obviously face similar difficulties um, and so what's interesting about this is that it's, it was built it was pushed by their current mayor uh, and, and they were sort of and as, as a sort of catch-all solution to all these problems. And these problems were, were pretty large. The biggest three that they were, they, they, their hopes, all the environmental plans were these sort of these legacy, legacy projects, uh, which were improving public transit, which will eventually happen, just not in time for the games. Uh, but they are at least still doing them. Um, a revitalized a port area, which just hasn't really happened. And the biggest one, which is the one that you've had with water, was cleaning up uh, Gunabara Bay. 
definitely mispronounced that, but anyways. Um, and and, and Gunabara Bay is a, is, a, is a space in right near Rio, uh, which nine million people live in watersheds that, where that where the water ends up in in this bay, um, and. And for decades, people have been dropping trash and sewage, untreated sewage, into this waterway, and so it's just been it's 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 you know it's toxic, and it's a lake of nightmares. Yeah, um, and and so and, and so that was the biggest one. That was the one they were really going to do. That was the one they were pushing as as their as as the biggest legacy project, uh, and. As, as, as Darren just pointed out, it's not lived up to the hope. Uh, they've, they've had a whole bunch of different problems, uh, and so much so that we have a, have a couple quotes from uh, Roberto Vamos, who's a sustainability consultant uh, who worked for the city uh, since you know, working on this whole thing. Um, and these quotes are kind of devastating. Uh, so the first is, obviously, in terms of the promises that were made for the city and Olympic legacy, the water sanitation part uh, was an absolute disaster. And nothing was done. Uh, because of that, I think the Olympic legacy really fell short in the terms of what was promised. Uh, and then he takes a – in the article, he takes a deep breath and then continues. In terms of the actual on-the-ground project themselves, the problems that we inherited were so enormous that they say they could not ha- – they could have – to say that we could have solved them in eight years is ridiculous. Uh, many of these problems are going to be solved over decades. And I think that's part of this whole. That's part of this whole idea of the Olympics, and part of the, the massive ongoing concern or difficulty with the Olympics is that you, these cities say they can do these things, and then have to do these things at such short time scales that it causes shoddy workmanship. Uh, you know, it, like you're, like no city is ready to host this kind of event, and and, and you look at sort of all the history. You know, look at Montreal right now, and how little their their Olympic their, their Olympic stadium is used. It's basically it sits there now. Uh, you know, you look at all the other conversations they have, and, and see so what you, you, you get is this uh, is this ton of money flowing in, uh, and there's just not enough time to do anything sustainable, sustainably. And so um, it's it's it, it, these, trying to use the, the the takeaway here is that the Olympics are not a city building venture. Do not use the Olympics as a city building venture. Uh, it will lead to uh, most things not great. Um, and, and, and we'll see, hopefully that everything will go at least relatively well in Rio. You obviously don't wish anything ill, uh, but it will certainly be an example of what can go wrong or yeah. it could be an example of what could go wrong. And in, in the closing of the seconds, my, my final comment on that will be that, uh, you know, as we see here, no matter what the intentions, uh, the, the mayor here has been hailed, you know, head of C40 hailed as a, as internationally with a giant reputation in sustainability, uh, has been, uh, quite influential in bringing more and more cities into this conversation about sustainability at the same time is himself accused of corruption. And most of the problem, why most of the stuff never got done was that the people inside the system, what honest people had given them the money, it all got filtered away. So it's just yet another example of how we'll never have the environment change we have if we're trying to deal with a corrupt system and that corrupt system has to be addressed as well that's all the time we have for on the show listen to the bonus show for more sarcastic comments from uh, myself possibly from Stefan. we'll see about this week uh, and some of our other guests as well other than that have a good green week folks thank you for listening to the green majority radio program we'll see you all real soon That's it for the regular show. Stay tuned now for the bonus show where we're going to have a both philosophical and ethical discussion about the concept of sacrifice zones. Before we get to that, of course, if you can, you're willing to and you're able to, we would very much appreciate you becoming a Green Majority member. You can do that today by going to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Green Majority. The fine uh, money raised through that helps offset the costs of our website and some of the other equipment that we use, and we would very much appreciate your help, even if you can only be a member for as little as a 
dollar a month. Every bit helps, uh, and that uh, is very appreciated. So you can do that at patreon.com slash majority. Other than that, stay tuned for the bonus show. Welcome to this week's edition of the bonus show. Uh, after some brief deliberation, we came up with an interesting uh, idea to talk about today, which is the idea of sacrifice zones. And the the this usually, and at least in my background, comes up under the auspices of uh, uh, dams. Uh, so of, uh, obviously, and it's actually maybe it's good that we have Rosemary here, uh, an area that has a lot of hydropower, of course, is Quebec. Um, and while this is in some circles hailed as a you know brilliant carbon zero thing and you know super environmentally friendly the idea of building more dams of course especially if we talk about things like site c uh, is that you give up a lot and that the damming uh, for power generation or, or any other purpose uh, an, an ecological system is that you're essentially you know putting your foot down in the middle of a river and you know interrupting stuff you could have all sorts of species could die out maybe they're endangered species maybe you're maybe you're even committing to wipe certain species off the planet uh, on the other hand, there's the argument that yes, okay, well, you know, species loss is bad, but it depends what you get for it, right? What would you would you be gil- willing to let someone cut off your foot if it saved your life, for instance? So this whole argument, uh, and what it really comes down to, I think, is that it's a it comes down to personal values, and I think that's why it's so hard for there to be agreement on this issue. So um, I was going to start just by outlining sort of my uh thought around the idea of that and then maybe we'll we'll toss it around and maybe have just a little bit of an ethical discussion today a little bit maybe potentially even an ethical debate today on the bonus show so my threshold for the idea of a sacrifice sacrifice zone would be pretty high um and it's about uh to and you could tell our our friends of the show tim nash is rubbing off on me because i'm going to use an economic term and say opportunity cost right what do you get for the loss um, is the idea of you know avoiding a single coal power uh, coal powered uh, plant uh, in lieu of building a hydro plant, but wiping out uh, a fairly significant area of landmass? Uh, say you you take two or three endangered species with you. Um, where does that threshold lie? So for me, I mean personally, I think. It, it is, in fact, just from my understanding of uh, having met, you know, at this point in my life, hundreds and hundreds of self-identified uh, environmental activists, many of them I, I know with near certainty would be uh, quite offended. They were thinking that my even considering this concept to be quite uh, heretical, um, despite my high thresholds, others I've met would say that uh, that we need to be much more practical and that there's, you know, billions of species. And as long as that we're put on the path to no longer having to make these types of decisions on the future, uh, essentially to come back to my previous analogy, the idea that if you if you cut off your foot saves your life, uh, is that not uh, is it not uh, ignorance, in fact, that would prevent you from in, uh, cutting off your foot? Uh, I think this is an extremely rich ethical uh, landscape, and I would like to pass it to uh, Rosemary to start. Well, I think, uh, Darren, actually, it seems like a false paradigm that we uh, we need some in some cases to do this. Dams are, I think, pretty well now, except from the powers that be, seen to be destructive. And really, there's more people are supporting things like run of the river projects that for hydro and not these big dams that, as you said, can wipe out so many species. So to say, well, we need sacrifice zones, I think that's not necessarily true anymore, that uh, we that every species counts. I think there was a recent example where the federal government stopped a project because uh, there was one species at risk. Mm. So I think, yeah, I think there's there's two different routes to take there that's very interesting. And I, I, I think your point is very valid, which is that the, it's often a false choice and that, that, that there is a third 
option. Uh, and I, I think I'd like to pursue that further as well. But just before we move on from you, Rosemary, let's just hypothetically say that there isn't a third option. Uh, where does that line stop, stop from you? Do we, do we delay proceeding on a, a path towards carbon, neutral, carbon neutrality uh, to avoid – is there any cost at which you would accept this concept if, if we were in this hypothetical uh, true choice between two options? I guess we'd have to. I'd be, but I'd be like you and say we have to have a high threshold. We can't just. We have to be very careful on what gets sacrificed. Right. So incremental progress would never be sufficient. It would have to be a you know a a magic bullet type option that would that would allow you to be comfortable with this type of concept. I guess. Okay. Uh, So uh, coming back to that, I think maybe maybe we can even uh, tie in those two concepts. I think Alec, but do you have a thought about either about the idea of is, is this ever not a false choice? Is there is there ever really going to be only two options. Well, I'm I'm just considering the idea of incremental change by by sacrificing certain areas. I feel like there there has there have been zones that have been sacrificed already such as like landfills or nuclear waste deposits and like nature does sort of clean itself up and take care of that in the super long term like well beyond human lifespan uh time like uh term so i'm i'm wondering if maybe uh some sort of sacrifice zone for incremental change is is a like an assess is going to be a necessity in the future and b uh would it be so bad to to leave it to to be renaturalized uh and come back to it in say a thousand years so potentially if i can attempt to uh rephrase what you were saying almost the idea that our that our concern about the damage we're doing is also human, uh, uh, human style short-term thinking, and that ultimately any thing we might be sacrificing is is only a temporary loss potentially. And so maybe we're overplaying the concept. I don't, I don't necessarily think that's where you're going with it, but that's sort of the thought I had listening to what you had to say. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know for sure. I'm definitely not committing to this idea personally. I'm just uh, I'm voicing it as sort of the other side, um, and. Yes, please don't send Alex hate mail. He was just—he was thinking out loud. I—I'm—I'm I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that for sure. Yeah, although I—I I do feel I do feel like uh, species and and also like whatever uh, poor population happens to live in the area that we've decided to sacrifice, there has to be some sort of of way of preserving uh, being able to move all of those people and animals and plants somewhere else if po- if at all possible that that's sort of a uh, uh, imperative in this whole situation all right so contrary to the show's tradition and me mangling last people's names i think i've actually got it uh, shaya tajvidi wow i practiced like three times so good you should you should be honored so i am i am <laughs> uh, what, what are your thoughts on this matter um, unfortunately, I can't really offer a, a vastly different angle than probably your hundreds of your guests have, have mentioned before. Um, I, I can't reconcile this idea of sacrifice zones. Um, and in fact, I, there, there are so many sacrifice zones, you know, on this land already. Um, it impacts like where we plan to make these sacrifices or are making these sacrifices, unfortunately, is a high human cost to indigenous populations that live downstream, as everyone already knows here today and who's listening. Um, it, it's, and I don't know that it is a short term uh, repercussion, you know, when generations of, of um, peoples are being born with mercury in their blood. 
um, I think that the impacts of these sacrifice zones can go well into the future. So it's it's for me right now in this minute a very um, hard thing to reconcile and generally speaking. Alex? Um, here's a sacrifice zone idea and also a transition to a different uh, article that we, we were hoping to touch on. Uh, what about uh, a city, a major city as a sacrifice zone, uh, such as, um, as mentioned in this article, uh, roughly 2% of U.S. homes at risk from sea level rise? So take Miami as an example of a sacrifice zone where they're saying um, like one in six, one in 10 homes are at risk of, of being underwater by 2100. So, uh, so what, what, what are the implications if we have to start sacrificing major cities as, as these zones towards, I mean, it's not, not necessarily for, for the betterment of, uh, of like our our plight uh, with climate change, but but just as sacrifices in general. Mm. Interesting angle. And uh, Rosemary, just so you know, I can't actually see you because of the glare. So if you need to jump in, just go ahead and interrupt me by by all means. Um, but no, I think that's really I, I like that you brought that angle in, Alex. The idea that you know we we immediately assume that when we're talking about sacrifice zones, we're talking about you know a, a mostly natural area and converting it to human you know benefit. Uh, and how much risk to nature uh, will uh, we uh, pertain? But yeah, I think I think that was very apt uh, segue actually to say, well, are we considering? Uh, do we include in that human sacrifice zones? And and does your attitude towards the issue change if we're sacrificing, say, Toronto versus sacrificing a forest outside of Toronto? Um, and I, my feeling on that concept, I think, is that if your attitude changes between those two, then you're probably uh, not uh, being objective. Uh, and that should that should set off an alarm bell if you're someone who is a proponent of an active proponent of of uh, sacrifice zones. That if you're willing to sacrifice a forest but not your house, um, then you may you may not be, as I said, you may not be being objective about the matter. Um, and yeah, I think, and I think Shia's point was also really important as as well, which uh, and Rosemary touched on this too. But just the the idea that um, we, if I can rephrase what I think both of you were saying in, in a way, I think it was the idea that you know, in my in my theoretical acceptance of the concept of a sacrifice zone, it re- would require essentially perfect information, and in that we would have to have with certainty, okay, we're going to give up, you know, A, B, and C will be sacrificed to achieve result, you know, D, F, and G. Uh, but you know, as we know from all of our uh, hubris as uh, as a species in the past, uh, our ability to perfectly pr- uh, project the impacts of our decisions to you know modify nature have been uh, almost a perfect failure, uh, and and that I think alone possibly should disqualify uh, any proposed idea of a sacrifice zone being uh, acceptable loss because we we will never actually know what it is we're sacrificing, uh, and the, the the danger of that unknown alone. Uh, I think is an incredibly convincing argument uh, to say that this should never be acceptable. Uh, what do you guys think of that? Well, in uh, in terms of of this uh, home uh, homes and cities being underwater article, um, it's it's sort of a, a sacrifice that we're going to have to make, regardless of of uh, whether we choose to or not. Um, and, and I think that that'll be very interesting how we. Uh, how we cope with that and how maybe the sacrifice scenario uh, might actually kick people into gear with regards to uh, to taking action to reduce their own impact. Mm. Um, the, the sacrifice 
uh, could could end up being particularly help. The sacrifice of a major city could end up being particularly helpful, even though it will lead to uh, massive homelessness and poverty and uh, migration and and that sort of thing. Although, as a mostly humorous uh, retort to that, I would say that based on the coastal areas that are likely to be sunk and and the usual association between coastal uh, and uh, uh, property and uh, retail prices, that probably it's mostly going to be rich people, If it's at least in the United States, that are going to be impacted by rising sea levels. Of course, that does not carry throughout the world, and many small island nations are also going to be wiped out. So that's certainly not a who cares thing, but the, 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 that proximity of the fact that it might actually be some wealthy and powerful people that are going to be impacted potentially first for a change, at least when it comes to the U.S. and Canada, uh, may in fact uh, have a larger impact on, on people uh, changing their minds about policy, uh, types of policy decisions. Uh, whether or not that will be too late is another question, of course. I can't help but feel that the people of Acaluate are going to have some serious problems. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Maybe the, maybe the last thing we can uh, just do is maybe sound off for a minute on the idea of like um, <laughs> just the the idea of the fact that like what a a full um, a full flip into gear would would mean. I mean, uh, if if the U.S. suddenly decided to to t- sort of take this challenge head on in this in the way that climate activists have been calling for for quite some time with a uh, so called World War II type war effort, um, you know. I, I'm, I'm concerned that while I, I have no doubt that that will eventually kick in, I'm, I'm incredibly concerned and I believe I'm backed up by most of the scientists that uh, by the time we start getting that, it is considerably too late to avert most of the severe damage. So, of course, that's not an I- idea. But we, uh, we, I think we're st- staying with theme, we, we ha- may have already sacrificed quite a big zone, which is you know a large part of where humans call home at the very, very least. And traditional territories. Yeah. And the animals and, you know, the environment of that traditional territory and how that seeps into these bodies that are on the front lines. So it's it's perpetually a question of who we are in present day sacrificing for our industrial activities. I mean, it's it's not a new uh, new reality. Yeah, I, th- I think an interesting angle maybe to, to close this out would be a we so we got a we got an, an angry an initially angry email from a listener. We've talked about this before. I won't go through it, but just for your context, Shia, uh, from a listener um, who uh, we said something about, you know, uh, vegans aren't frontline activists. And we got an angry email saying, no, no, we totally are. We're, you know, right out there in the forefront. And we're like, no, 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 you misunderstood the term. Frontline doesn't mean, you know, who's the most active on this issue. Uh, frontline means who's the first impacted. And they went, oh, you know, shoot, I'm totally sorry, I misunderstood. Um, but it was very illustrative, I think, an example of the fact that um, there's still a lot of, you know, humans just by our very nature, this has nothing to do with, you know, political allegiances or where you live or anything else, just the way that the human brain has evolved uh, is very, very bad at uh, being empathetic to other people's situations, or, or at least to the extent that our default, I think for understandable from biochemical and evolutionary points of view, is to assume that everyone else is like us until, you know, provided information otherwise. And that makes a lot of sense, because how else would you design a system, a learning computer, if you will, a human brain. Uh, but what that results in is that people always assume that other people's circumstances are like there. So because my house isn't underwater, I can't imagine what it would be like for your house to be underwater. Uh, or I can't use your house being underwater as a, as a very good motivator for my house potentially being underwater in the future just because that's not how our brains have evolved. Um, and so I think one of the one of the things that I, we try and do with sort of the purpose of this show is to talk about these stories and to let and to sort of not just go through the facts, but also go through the sort of ideological and, you know, spiritual less often, obviously, but we, you know, get into that some of stuff as well to try and promote some uh, 
empathy because it is it is not natural. It is it is counter nature to uh, immediately sort of be able to identify, or at least against the nature of the way that we've sort of evolved as a species. And I think that as far as like a transcendence of you know humanity is you know beyond simply the type of infrastructure that we like to build. Why I'm significantly less skeptical these days than if you'd asked me six years ago about the idea of you know a quote unquote spiritual awakening or, or what I would probably choose to task as a social transformation uh, to the idea of this sort of communalist spirit and not I don't mean communalist as in communism I just mean this generalized understanding that all of our individual welfares is dependent on all of our welfares as a community of humans but also as just simple life forms on this you know rock hurtling through space um, and that it's more than, than some sort of you know, attempt to, you know, spiritual enlightenment, it's, I think it's just a requirement for survival at this point. Um, but understanding that from my own previous sort of skepticism on that, just at a knee jerk, not liking that as a concept, it just seemed hokey to me to now my current position, while hokey or not, it's, it seems to be demonstrably factual. Um, so I've sort of come around, I, I, I don't know, like, how does that sort of play into you as far as your own uh, personal, you know, efforts or activism is sort of the idea to not just sort of espouse, hey, climate change is dangerous, we should do something about it. But do you have any thoughts about that sort of idea of like actually needing to transform, you know, what it means to be human, basically? <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. Or, or at least human human society. Well, isn't, isn't that the pressing challenge at every level? I mean, it would inevitably require drastic transformation of yeah our individual lives but also a much bigger collective picture isn't that like this is this is the uh not unsolvable question but the question that maybe we don't we we just haven't we we still haven't nailed the answer to um does someone want to take that in a more specific direction (laughs) summarized in a chant i've heard repeatedly it's uh, culture change not climate change or something Mm -hmm. like that something to that extent and i I think that's incredibly true Mm -hmm. yeah Mm-hmm. Um, I've been reading a lot about like consciousness shifting and sort of elevating to the next level of of human consciousness and human culture, and and I think that totally uh, is is the issue uh, with regards to finding a solution for for climate change, and and it's like it's basically just uh, what I what I think most people don't acknowledge is that it is totally uh, a matter of our survival. A lot of people who uh, maybe who live in Toronto or a place like that who aren't immediately at risk, they don't realize that uh, if we keep doing what we do, we're all eventually going to, to be extinct. We're, gonna, we're not going to be here anymore. And, uh, and I think that the, the consciousness shift is sort of the, uh, the only solution where we can... Uh, we can get to somewhere uh past where we are now where we all have a deep understanding of of what of what we need to do to um to survive i guess but not only survive uh be like live in harmony with yeah i don't know i don't know where i'm going with this but uh those are my thoughts consciousness shift is uh is what we need to do 
I, I think in a conversation about philosophy, you're allowed to be imprecise, Alex. Yes. <laughs> Shia. But Toronto will never experience, um, you know, this this economic, like, capital of the country will never experience, and its residents uh, will not experience the kinds of sacrifice that people outside of it are actively living in their day-to-day. If, if the water contamination is here, the city or, uh, you know, governing bodies would be quick to clean it up in a flash. You know, and it's not to say that, like... We we should necessarily be, you know. I'm not I'm not wishing sa- uh, suffering on onto people here, but it's just we won't. There's such a disconnect with the way that people, um, you know, in these deeply impacted communities live. So if, if we're, we have to press that interconnectivity that you were talking about, I feel to really you know connect with we're all a part of this. This is affecting everybody here. Um, mm. I'm apparently just full of quotes today. Uh, the uh, there, there's somebody, somebody uh, with an excellent turn of phrase said uh, at some point said something about uh, humanity's reach often uh, outstre- outreaches its grasp or something. The idea being that we have impacts beyond our ability to sort of fully understand or fully control them. Uh, it, that may have, in fact, been something said in association with the uh, Manhattan Project and, and mm. nuclear war. Uh, probably, usually, a lot of the good quotes, unfortunately, come from wartime leaders, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, to to take another wartime quote to maybe finish it off in a in a list of you know awkward quotes from from people I wish I wasn't quoting would be the idea. I believe it was Colin Powell. It might have been George Bush, but the idea of you know the the war being one of hearts and minds, and and I think that we have a lot of minds on board, and I'm not sure we have quite as many hearts. And I think that. Uh, we, we can't just be seeing climate change as an enemy. We have to be seeing climate change as being a consequence, the most recent consequence of our lack of unity as a species and as a planet, uh, including all life forms. Um, and then if we don't win that battle, fighting climate change seems pointless. Um, but on good news, I'm actually optimistic about that. So, you know, being a realist, we, we may lose quite a bit of land and lots of people are almost certainly uh, going to be put in a bad spot, if not uh, lose their homes, if not die. Um, we've already committed to that. That's simply reality at this point. Uh, however, I have a lot of hope uh, to uh, cornered, uh, cornered creatures suddenly doing what's necessary. So we, you know, we may have to accept some losses, but I think ultimately we're going to be fine. Um, and if it requires a kick in the butt to get there, I think at this point we've committed to getting that kick in the butt whether we need it or not. So I don't know. I think we're in for some rough times, but uh, I think we're going to make it, Alex. I don't think you have to worry about uh, extinction just yet. In our lifetime? <laughs> Debatable. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this unintentionally sort of serious, but I think uh, very satisfying uh, philosophical and ethical conversation here in the bonus show. Thanks again to our uh, tech uh, Alex uh, and Shai as well for joining us again in the bonus show, uh, who we hope to see more of once again very soon. But that's it for this week's edition of The Green Majority and The Bonus Show. Thanks for listening and have a good green week. Uh-huh.